welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Shokananda and Reverend Prem, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. <laughs> welcome to another episode Swami Ashokanadi, you had some thoughts today. What did you want to share? Yeah, I mean, we see it's such a volatile time in the world and maybe particularly our country. And it's so challenging to be able to listen. We don't have to agree, but to be able to listen to somebody and not be so stuck in our perspective that we're afraid of being influenced by what we hear. This is something I've really been working on lately myself. It's actually one of my things that I, I look at every day. How do I respond to a different perspective than my own? I tend to shut down. I tend to think they, they're getting information from a, a wrong place. It might be true. It may not be true. I'm so aligned with my own perspective that I may not leave room or be able to listen well. And I made it maybe the key component of my sadhana at this point in my life is when things are, when things are coming to me that I really don't like, I really feel uncomfortable. I really want to understand what is going on within me. I think have some respect for what is immediately coming up, but then to have enough capacity to decide if that's my real response or not. Is that what's going to bring the best good in this situation. I want to have the capacity to pause. The way Eric Schiffman puts it is put a comma in my commentary. <laughs> I, love yeah, I know. I love that. Yeah. I still can have my commentary, but I'm just going to put a comma there and pause for a moment. And then in that pause, settle into myself. It's not just a, a void. It's like it's a settling in from a deeper place. And it's, just, it's not just my conditioning, my samskaras responding now or reacting now. And it's usually coming from a place that has a deeper insight into what needs to take place at this moment. And I just want to see how I can be a force for a higher energy, a higher vibration of a unified vision, have more faith in the beneficence that pervades this universe. So that's a few thoughts, Pramanjali, about what, what I'm working with. Uh, that is just, wow. I mean, that, that, that's a teaching right there that we could unpack for quite some time. Mm. I mean, when you first started talking, I was thinking, well, find time to be working on that, Swamiji. I mean, I was listening to one of my Buddhist teachers today say that a practice that he's developed during this time is he'll watch TV. He'll just turn the sound off. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> and he literally he, watches. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said he started doing this during, actually during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Oh, okay. <laughs> they were driving him so crazy. He just, he's just yeah. like thought for a second, hey, what would happen if I turned the sound off? You know, so mm. he turns the sound off and he knows like this complete shift within himself, mm. he, you know, his reactivity, it just like ratcheted down. Yeah. So I was going to first ask you when you took on this practice, was it in relation to, you know, specifically to these difficult times? And is this a practice for our times? Is this a practice for all time? Even Patanjali thousands of years ago felt that you needed to cultivate the opposite positive thought because of our reactivity based on our conditioning. I think it's a, a practice for all times. I mean, the way Master Shivananda said it, bear insult, bear injury, the highest sadhana, the highest spiritual practice 
Yeah, I mean, it's very hard for me when people misunderstand my motive. They ascertain negative motives behind what I'm doing, selfishness. And maybe there is some truth to it. I have to listen to that. I'm not saying I don't have any selfishness, but I can see that their interpretation is not generous. <laughs> and, and that hurts me and affects me. I, I feel both hurt and angry, you know, yeah. frustra- frustrated. Yeah. And I see that if I do the same for them, if I judge them without being charitable toward their situation, it doesn't help the situation at all. I mean, Grudev talks about, you know, how you can get fruit from the tree. Tree's very generous. But if you throw a rock at it, you'll get more fruit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to be like that where, you know, people say nasty things about me and I I see that they're a good heart somehow. I want to hold on to the fact that they're good people. In the, in the heart of hearts. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's okay for me to, to defend myself. I'm not saying I'm above that or that's the wrong thing to do. I don't want to encourage the negativity in myself and in the interaction. So, but to answer your question, uh, things have just gotten more intense on different levels for me. I assume for, for most of us, this it's an intense time. Yeah. And I think people have a little bit shorter fuse. They feel more vulnerable and worried. I think it requires more patience and empathy than less. Yeah. And, you know, I think of something that um, Swami Vidyananda once said. This Mm -hmm. is years ago, but it really stuck with me. I think she was struggling. I was struggling with with just what you described, where there's people who assign these characteristics or traits or make judgments about you, and they literally don't know you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, with the people you know don't know you, it's a little easier. There's a little more distance, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Psychological distance to say, they don't know me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's their opinion. So she was saying this. So she has a saying, okay, consider the source. Mm. Like, so if some kind of criticism or judgment or, you know, is coming your way, consider the source. Consider, number one, if it's someone you wouldn't take advice from, don't take critique from them either, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that's such a great guideline. Mm -hmm. Then if it's someone who you would take advice from and you know they care about your highest good, then really listen to what they're saying, right? Yeah. Really consider, okay, where am I in this? And then there's other people you know that they just, they got their own stuff going on. They're not seeing clearly. And so, yeah, you consider that source, right? And I love also that Maya Angelou's statement too. Oh my God, that greatest quote. When people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Oh, how many times we have this intuition that the interactions we're having with someone, there's something just kind of off about it. But you kind of go, okay, you know, you kind of give them a pass. And then it kind of happens again where they just, the way they're interpreting a situation or something you've said, and then it gradually degenerates into this really unhealthy kind of communication and relationship and interactions. And if you think about it, that was exactly your first intuition was this is not a person who is going to really listen to me, understand, be fair, be compassionate, yeah. you know, be balanced, be thoughtful, be reflective about themselves as well. 
And so when someone tells you who they are, mm -hmm. believe them the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say for me, I can get a sense of that often that pretty early on, whether this person is someone who cares about me and really wants to develop a relationship. But if that's not, then I, I, I want to make sure that I still take their critique in a respectful way, respect them as a person. Uh, I'm facing some of that now, and it doesn't pay for me to just respond negatively to them. I mean, does that ever work? Does it really ever work? I mean, unless a person is just, I mean, there's just no way, no how, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. happening. But yeah. does it ever? I mean, Gurudev talks about using anger, you know, keeping it in your pocket. Right. That's, you know, it's skillful means using your, using your anger with wisdom. I think that's a very interesting thing. You know, uh, I want to be respectful. I don't think I should accept disrespect myself. So I think there's a place for me to say, I think you're crossing the line here. This is not a, an interaction that I, I could accept. So I don't know how I would do it, but yeah. Or this yeah. is not okay with me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I think that's important. I think that it, that's healthy ego boundaries. Yeah. And then there's also, of course, in the Yoga Sutras, we've got the four keys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about those a little bit. They're very similar to uh, something in Buddhism where they talk about these qualities of compassion, yeah. Yeah. loving kind. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. karuna, a maitri. Yeah. Karuna, com compassion, maitri, <laughs> friendliness, uh, mudita. This is a beautiful one. It's translated sort of as like sympathetic joy. But what it means, it's like empathic joy. You don't, when something good happens to somebody or you see some good quality, you don't feel like jealous of it or in yeah. competition with that. You actually feel an empathy, like you're as happy for them mm. as if it was happening to you. And then the fourth quality, this is like the quality of Buddha mind, these, these qualities. And the fourth one is equanimity. It's just beautiful. And a similar interpersonal relationships is guided by the four keys in the Yoga Sutras. Let's just do, as a reminder, the four keys. So basically we have, again, very parallel to Buddhism. Maitri, friendly toward the happy. Okay. Then we have Karuna, compassion for the unhappy. Okay. We're right in line, Mudita, for mm. delight in people's virtues. Mm. The fourth one a little differs between Buddhism. So in Buddhism is equanimity. In Patanjali's yoga, it is disregard for the wicked. Yeah, which, which, I guess, which produces equanimity. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, if you have equanimity, then you have all these qualities already. Yeah. Right? Then you're going to be equal-minded to everyone and not affected. So, yeah. Yeah, so when someone has a bad intent toward me, I don't want to rush to judgment that, they, that their intention is bad. They may hurt me, but they, intending to hurt me is another story. That's a, that's a different level. Yeah, that's if, next level. Yeah. So I don't want to assume that. It seems that they hurt me. So I'm, I, my tendency is to assume that they chose to hurt me. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I want to make that hypothesis and see, you know, ask them, you know, you said that, what was your intention in saying that, you know? And, wow. then, if, and then if they really say, you know, it becomes clear that this is someone that I didn't need to disregard to keep my equanimity, then I'll do that. Or I may even respond with a little anger. 
So talk about that a little bit, cultivating that presence of mind where you can have that pause. I think that question to me is just so beautiful. What's the intention? Either asking within yourself to try to understand what their intention could be, or actually even asking them. I'm, I'm unclear about the intention behind your question. Not, yeah. could you say more about that? I mean, yeah. wow. Could you help me understand what, wow. what you're saying and why you're saying that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, and that takes a lot of presence of mind to be able to do that uh, because we are hurt and we're assuming ill intent and we're having to question our assumption, sometimes literally question it out loud uh, with the person. Uh, it feels like maybe you intended to hurt me. I don't know. Yeah. I, I hope I'm mistaken. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a real yogic practice uh, because the momentum of our immediate reaction is going to be very strong, you know, particularly, as you say, you know, the people closest to us are the ones that have the capacity to hurt us. Uh, yeah. So, so usually that's when, you know, and usually the explosion comes after a series of things that we didn't speak up about. Now that's the last straw of that explosion. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading this article. Uh, it was by, I don't know if you know her, Beth Hinnon. Yeah. I yeah. Know her. She's a teacher in New York, Hawaii. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. So she wrote this series of articles on uh, different aspects of the Yoga Sutras. One was about the four locks and keys. Mm -hmm. She said, lucky for me, the Yoga Sutras give clear instructions on bypassing the mind. Mm. Not getting caught up in its whirlwinds of do it, no, don't do it, or you should have done that. The sutra's aim is to help calm those whirlwinds, mm. the vrittis, right? Slow them de way down so I can see here between the gaps for mm. other options of actions. Mm. Options I like to think come from life, divine consciousness, the true self. Mm. So it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, the comma in the commentary, yeah. Ex exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And she yeah. goes through each one. So she gives this example. So I'm walking down the street and there's a fellow whistling and he, he's not whistling at her. Okay. It's not a cat call. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's whistling, smiling, coming toward me as I'm walking down the street. She says, if, if I was in an undisturbed calmness of mind, I could keep that state according to the four keys sutra um, by responding to such behavior with friendliness, which might be a smile, a mm -hmm. nod, even a hello. And that seems simple enough. However, what if that guy's happiness triggers a sense of comparison in me? Mm. Hey, I'm not that happy. What's going on with me? What's he happy about? What's he so happy about? Yeah. He, you know, I could just hear the bridges. The yeah. What's he so happy about? Did he win some money, get a big promotion? What's wrong with me? It's easy. Why, why can't he see the reality? He's just hiding with the Pollyanna viewpoint. He doesn't see how bad things are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he must be high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so she says, it's easy to see how quickly the Vrittis can spin a calm mind into yeah, yeah. a whirlwind of stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then she says, imagine if I met the fellow and, and I don't have a calm mind. What the heck would come out of my mouth, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So that's the first key, yeah. this friendliness toward the happy. The second key, cultivating compassion toward the sad. Again, this seems so straightforward, yet many of us have different definitions of compassion. Mm -hmm. To some, it seems, you know, it means to be nice. To others, it might mean tough love. Potentially doesn't give any guidance on action. 
only on attitude, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. So it'd be helpful here to explore what does compassion mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she goes on to define it according to the dictionary. She says, Pema Chodron has been known to define compassion as an armless mother mm. watching her child fall into a raging river. Oh. Mm. Woo. Mm. Wow. What a mother would feel. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And Brene Brown suggests compassion is, quote, allowing another to be vulnerable, exposed, loved, and accepted all at the same time. Mm. And also Brene Brown says compassion is a relationship between equals. Mm. Only when we know our darkness well can we be present with the darkness of others. Yeah. Otherwise, it slips into patronizing oh poor person you know exactly which uh, is what you call sympathy you know yeah. there is really a difference between sympathy empathy yeah. compassion yeah yeah i think empathy is a really a spiritual state because it means you really have enough confidence in yourself to silence your mind and its point of view and really get in the shoes of whatever the person is saying yeah, it's sort of like that native saying, like walking a mile yeah. someone else's moccasins. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, literally getting in their, sh in their psychological yeah. shoes. Yeah. Yeah. But here's an interesting thing. There is a near enemy of that. And that is that for people who, who struggle with codependency or with attachment to the person, you know, to, to people, um, a loved one or in general, it's a little bit of a slippery slope empathy. And I think that's why, like in Buddhism and, you know, the Dalai Lama, they don't emphasize empathy. It's really is compassion. Mm. It's friendliness and compassion. Why? Because compassion is a more neutral. You're still feeling that feeling like of what Pema Chodron describes as the mother seeing the child. So there is an empathic heart to it. There's wisdom mixed into it. Mm. I think, it, you know, it could be semantics. Right. Because for me, I think that if I have compassion, it should, it should spring out of empathy. If it, I don't know where the compassion comes from, but it doesn't come from really feeling what the other person's feeling first. Wow, uh, that's it. Here's the difference. In Buddhism, yeah. Yeah. compassion springs out of Buddha nature, bodhicitta. So mm. this is a quality of mind. You know, basically, Buddhist precept, you dedicate, when you embrace the Dharma and you say, this is what I want to follow in my life, what you're making a commitment to is bodhicitta. And that means that every action, it's like Gurudev talks about, is it's dedication. It's for the benefit of others. And so everything you do is for the benefit of others. And everything you see in others, you see their Buddha nature. So your compassion flows out of a deep trust and faith in the innate goodness of all people, all beings, no matter what they've done in their lives. You believe that fundamentally that is their nature. And thus, that's where your compassion comes from. When I think of now, again, you know, my background in psychology, when I think of just the traditional definitions of empathy, that tends to flow from that view, from a Western psychological view, that flows from, I can relate to you. Whereas in the Eastern tradition, it's not like, I don't have to relate to you. I mean that I could, and that could be helpful, but it's not dependent on that. 
my goodwill toward you is not dependent on me identifying with what you're going through. So it's inherently a selfless act. And I'm not saying empathy isn't a selfless act. I'm just saying it's like a subtle nuanced distinction, maybe, and maybe it's just semantics. Yeah. I mean, if you're rooted in your higher self, I don't know if you need empathy. Compassion, I think, flows naturally. But if you're you're still in a Jedi in training, (laughs) (laughs) then I think the step, the preliminary step, is to be able to put your point of view aside which is such a, that's a big project in itself. And to really hear, not just with your ears, but through your whole being, you hear the other person. You can understand how they see it that way. Yeah. You may totally not accept that point of view, but you can understand how they see it that way. That's the step that I have to go through right now. As I work to get established in my Buddha nature, I first have to be able to disassociate my Shokananda nature (laughs) <laughs> or my, you know, my personality nature uh, before I can associate with my, my higher nature. Oh, I, I really think- like that. I think this is an interesting distinction because a lot of time when I think of like the different things that people would come to Gurudev to, you know, to ask him about and talk to him about, some of it, it would be like, he'd have no clue what really, <laughs> you know, what their experience is, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I was with my boyfriend and then he did this and that, and then that mm-hmm. happened. I felt this way or, you know. Yeah. Or, you know, I just, you know, I went, I just had a miscarriage and I'm just distraught and, you know, the myriad of things that people would, and especially coming from his culture, I remember one time the Dalai Lama too, there was a, this big meeting with a lot of the uh, women monks mm. and they were telling him about what they've gone through in Western culture in terms of patriarchy and abuse and aggression against women. And, and he literally started to cry. Mm. And he said he had no idea that that was their experience. Mm. It's true that I think at that level of these great masters, their compassion can embrace everything. Mm. But Mm. us mere mortals, it's (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It could be somewhat semantics, but I I do see the distinction, I think, that we're trying to point out. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third lock and key, so the delight toward the virtuous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here I'm going back to Beth. Um, Again, this seems simple, especially when it comes to heroes like Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, Swami Satchidananda, but it becomes much more challenging when it hits closer to home. If my friend and I decide to eat healthier, for example... And my friend sticks to the commitment and I don't. Can I show delight toward her? Typical Vrittis would likely attack me and my friend. Oh, what a show of what a goody two shoes or I'm lame. I'm a loser. I'm fat. Again, you know, she turns to the dictionary for a definition of the attitude of delight. And it says recognition with joy. Delight. Mm. Light shines and we delight. Patanjali is offering that by dropping the vrittis and each of these locks and keys, we can resonate with, experience, be our true nature. I imagine life, divine consciousness, delighting when my friend sticks to her commitment to eat healthy. And I can choose to experience the same and it can all happen in an instant. I mean, we're all we're talking about some kind of thinning out of this separate existence. Mm. If someone 
is showing some beautiful quality. I can see how stuck I am in duality by my reaction to that. Wow. And how, and how what progress I've made by my reaction to that. He's giving us a, a kind of a, a guideline of mm. how to thin out this separate self. I might still have a first reaction of some competitiveness. Do you think that's a male thing? I don't, I mean, I don't want to get into gender wars, but yeah. it, do you think? Maybe, uh, maybe men have it a little bit more. I, I, I mean, I think I see it in women also, you know. I've lived in ashrams all my life, so I've lived with women my whole adult life. I don't think they're immune to it. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit more in men. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Because I think sometimes women have a tendency to first put themselves down. You know, mm -hmm. like when you were first talking about how somebody says something to you and what your first reaction might be. And then I was thinking about my own reaction and it's usually, oh my God, what did I do? You know, I really messed up. Oh uh -huh. my God. I'm like, you know, and I'll just go into this whole like, oh, and then I'll be like, whoa, hold on. Reality check time. And I may even have to call someone for a reality check. Someone who I trust, who's not going to just say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. You know, but someone will say, well, yeah, I think they were really off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll say, really? You really think that? Because I mm -hmm. got really confused by that. So I don't know if that is a more female kind of thing that we tend to, you know, kind of put ourselves down, you know, have yeah. the tendency to put ourselves down a yeah. little more. Yeah, however it comes out, it's a, it does reflect the small self. I do use that to nudge my consciousness a little bit into a deeper, higher level to feel that, that joy for the person's virtue. And it does, I think, shift me into you know, a more peaceful, beautiful place. You know? I think in the end, Patanjali is just interested in Chittafriti Naroda, how can I stop my mind from moving? So if I can enjoy someone's virtue without comparison, it doesn't make me less. Why should I become less because of that person's virtue? Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. think this point that you just made is exactly a point too that Beth makes in her article where she mm. says, the more we explore, you know, these four keys, friendliness, compassion, delight, and she actually calls it equanimity as the <laughs> fourth. Okay, yeah. Which we'll look at next. Yeah. Could all be included in the definition of our true nature. Mm -hmm. So it could be that Patanjali's attitudes, these four keys, are simply discrete aspects of experiencing yoga. And what is yoga just as you define? Chitta vritti naroda. So, like you said, or, or as a Buddha, our Buddha nature. It's just yeah. our, our Buddha nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. so, so the fourth lock and key. So the idea is, and you know, we should probably say too, for people new to these sutras, this idea of the lock and the key, as Gurudev would say, so there's these four locks and keys, and these four attitudes, ways of being, by cultivating them, they are the key that unlocks difficult, unskillful ways of being in the world, right? Mm, beautiful, yeah. So this last lock and key is equanimity toward the non-virtuous. And Beth says, in all my years of teaching, this one seems to cause the most head shakes and grumblings. Mm. Yeah, but what about when someone cuts me off in traffic? You know, on the way to the subway, I'm supposed to smile and be nice? And she says, in a word, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> Patanjali's whole point of the sutras is for you to experience yoga, union, it doesn't comment on what other people are supposed to experience, be or do, right? So for me in particular, with respect to this part of the sutra, this is Beth speaking, it doesn't matter what someone else's behavior is. 
I can always maintain a calm, peaceful mind. It is important what I do, not what anyone else does. My well-being is not at the mercy of someone else. It mm. is all up to me. And yet when I look at the dictionary definition of equanimity, this is Merriam-Webster, awareness of mind, right disposition, even mind, smiling and being nice, actions are not part of it. Again, Patanjali wants us to cultivate a heartfelt attitude. Mm -hmm. And then she comments, perhaps what strikes me most about this lock and key is to not make things worse, mm -hmm. not spiral down. Mostly mm -hmm. I want to maintain a calm mind in the situation because out of all the poor lock behaviors, this one has the highest likelihood of turning harmful. And what I've discovered when I can keep a calm mind is that no matter what the behavior is, happy, sad, virtuous, non-virtuous, that behavior becomes information, not a judgment or a statement on who we are as humans. That's so interesting. It's like you were saying, where you try to understand what's the intention. It's the behavior becomes not something to react against, not something to judge. It becomes information. Yeah. It's only the vrittis that want to move it into a story, a movie, mm -hmm. <laughs> a judgment or critique. Yes. And then she gives this example. Okay, so if I say something to my spouse who instantly gives me a look that I've always interpreted as severe disapproval, rather than going to a knee-jerk reaction of anger, I can choose to interpret that look as information. Something caused my spouse to have that expression. Was it really what I said? By practicing equanimity, I can calmly ask about the look. And it could easily be that while I was talking, my spouse had a moment of extreme pain from an old knee injury that caused that expression, which leads to another beautiful part of this sutra. I don't have to figure anything out. <laughs> I need only respond how Patanjali suggests. Show equanimity, even mind, toward the look from my husband, right? Mm -hmm. And keep my calmness, at which point I can ask for clarification. And if it is disapproval, that equanimity can allow for endless response options that don't include anger and may even lead to an open-hearted discussion that could benefit the relationship. I like that. What I hear Beth saying, to diffuse a situation rather than add fuel to it, you have, there should be some element of safety. Mm. What if you don't have safety? What if it's somebody you don't really know? I mean, what yeah. do you... So the first thing I would try to think, ideally, I don't know if uh, in actuality, but ideally I would, this person is doing something that seems cruel. Do they not feel safe? Why are they acting this way? Uh-huh. And then I have to ask, do I feel safe? Mm. If I can openly talk about the lack of safety in the interaction, maybe we can start over again or something. Wow. If I, if I can't, I have to preserve my safety. Yeah. Wow. That's, a, that's such a great point. Yeah. I see people really bad at diffusing. They always ratchet it up. So if, if they feel attacked, they, they always reach it, bring it up in the notch. Exactly. And That's what we're seeing even in, you know, in yeah. discussions about police training. Yeah, yeah, Instead yeah. Instead of really being trained to diffuse, yeah. it just escalates, which yeah. is a natural. That's the human emotion, but it's not wise action. It's not it's skillful, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Particularly someone who is representing law and order has to 
understand this idea of the diffusing through creating safety. Yeah, because you're exactly right. You know, Swamiji, you're exactly right that that's really what happens that when someone sees a police officer and whatever is happening, isn't that the almost innate reptilian brain reaction? Like, oh my God, something is wrong here. And depending on the reaction from yeah. that police officer, if it's like calming, like, okay, everything's okay here, you know, tell me what's going on. Then you can have it, you know, you open a space for a shift. But if the police officer then comes on like, hey, man, you know, it mm. just, all your fear triggers just go, yeah. Wah! yeah, yeah. Take if you're a black male, yeah, exactly. young black male. <laughs> yeah. It's Next like, thing you know, you got mace in your eyes. and Yeah, that, yeah. on a good day. So, yeah, but uh, I don't need to point my fingers outside. I still have to work on how I escalate things. I don't want to do that. And my intention is strong enough that I think I'm getting better at it. But the beauty of the universe, it keeps giving me opportunity to see how far I've really progressed. <laughs> <laughs> that is the reframe that we all need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, especially with some of the things coming down the pike. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Beth, um, she has this really interesting conclusion because we've been talking about the four locks and keys and interpersonal relationships and how to be more skillful in our interactions and with our own minds. Uh, in her closing, she points us in a different direction. She says, okay, so now we've been talking about our interactions with others. In the end, the Yoga Sutras are aimed at encouraging me and all spiritual students to experience yoga, divine consciousness, a calm mind. And there's no quicker way for me to do that than to practice this sutra and above all to practice it toward myself. For what more important relationship is there in my life than the one I have with myself? When I'm happy, I will treat myself with friendliness and not let vrittis, mind waves, thoughts, ruminations, obsessions, stinking thinking, try to shame me out of my feeling happy. The same with sadness, virtuous and non-virtuous behaviors. Whatever I practice with others, I practice with myself, for I am as deserving as any other human being to be approached with friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity. Wow. Yeah. Do you think you can practice it with others without having practiced it yourself on yourself? I think people do that to some extent, especially mm -hmm. um, in, in spiritual life. I think it's a near enemy to these practices mm -hmm. that we do a little bit of spiritual bypassing there so that mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, and let's say I feel like I really did mess up something. Okay, I'm not saying just say, oh, well, you know, that's okay. No, look at what could I have done better at the same time. Have friendliness toward myself. Have compassion toward myself. Have sympathetic joy toward myself. You know, yeah, you're learning, you're growing. We'll do better next time. Um, it's okay. I'm human. Everyone makes mistakes. I think that there can be a tendency to be a lot more compassionate with others when you're on a spiritual path than we are with ourselves. Does that make sense to you? I think I'm someone who has the some scar of wanting to be a, a good boy, be liked by others. So I, I might practice these four keys, but I think what Tanja is talking about 
you know, touching that Buddha nature. I don't want my goodness to be a part of my conditioning. I mean, it's better than being a bad person by conditioning, but it's still, now I'm in a golden cage instead of a rusty iron cage. I'm a good boy. I want to be perceived as a good boy. So I have compassion towards the unhappy and but there's a, a higher place that I'm trying to reach. I think something like what Beth was saying, they're not thought forms. They're, they're coming from a higher frequency. And my goodness, my compassion, my equanimity is not from thought. It's not from concept. It's, from it's, my not, own. From, it's not from wanting to be good or appear yeah. good. Yeah. It's my own uh, inner experience of something higher than that. And I think that's what ultimately Patanjali is, is, is nudging us toward, that Buddha nature that has these natural qualities. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Agree. hundred percent. But until then, why not try to overcome some of our lower thinking with better thoughts? Why not make it into a practice? There's no harm in concepts and thoughts and practice. Uh, I think we, everyone has to start there, right? As long as we don't think that we've, we've made it because now I'm pretty much a good boy. Uh, no, no, don't stop at being a good boy, you know. Be a, an excellent soul, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, letting it expand more and more. I heard this metaphor today, and it's just been swimming around in my head. And I love it. It really is conveying just what you're expressing. So we start out with this hot cup of water. Okay. So that could be like our spiritual thirst of like we're sort of on fire to progress on the spiritual path so we think well let me put some good things in here mm -hmm. oh i'll put a tea bag maybe we add some sweetener or whatever else we want to put in but it's the tea bag the essential thing that's going to make this hot water into this cup of tea and at first it's just like a little tea and then as it sits there more and more it steeps and steeps until it becomes a full-bodied cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what practice is. It's yeah. like keeping the tea bag in there with the zeal, the hot water, and then it will eventually expand and become that full-bodied, beautiful cup of tea. Yeah, don't keep pulling the tea bag out and tasting it. Wave the tea bag in there for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And also don't rush and say, you know, like you put the tea bag in one second later, you yeah. drink the tea. It's like, yeah. hey, wait a minute. <laughs> this you know? is hot water. It's just the hot water. The <laughs> 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 problem, of course, is, you know, when, when this person, you know, is drinking hot water and they're, and they're teaching about tea. <laughs> they know all about tea and they're drinking hot water, you know. So that's, that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's all try to enjoy full body yeah. of tea and yes. be, the, be really be that. Let the scent of full body tea perfume everything in our experience, in our interactions. That could be the incredible gift and beauty of what we can receive from these teachings of the yoga sutras of buddhism a beautiful yeah. way to end i think our session think so. yeah yeah it goes back to the beginning uh how can we respond to life rather than be so reactive uh uh yeah keep the tea bag in, in hot water yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> keep ourselves out of hot water by keeping. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's good. See, I'm taking the light in your virtue. <laughs> Thank you, my fellow Ofogi. That was a wonderful time with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.